0: been sold the idea that financial independence is all about some number on your account statement or even worse that you don't qualify because of where you started out that's just not true it's not about some well-kept secret of the wealthy it's about finding the right information and knowing how to apply it on the get ready for the future show we're answering your questions so you can start making real financial change today the journey to true financial independence begins right here and it starts with you
1: Once again, we've got some good questions teed up for you on the Get Ready for the Future show today, helping you discover, protect, and share true financial independence. Welcome aboard. We're glad to have you with us. My name is Scott Inman, along with me, John Shrewsbury, today on this last day, as we record this show, the last day of January 2024, and man, we've had a turn in the weather department here in central Arkansas. (laughs) Yes, we have. We've gone from single-digit temperatures a couple of weeks ago uh, to... Spring-like temperatures outdoors and indoors, which is why we've shed our coats today. It's a little yeah. warm in the office building today.
2: Yeah, they're doing some HVAC work in the <laughs> office, and it ain't HV or ac either one. So uh, yeah. it's a little warm, but that's okay. Yeah. So if you hear a little fan buzzing in the background. Or say, if we you know, break out in a sweat, you'll know uh, <laughs> yes. that we're not just
1: panicked by something. Yeah, people not listening to the video or watching the video are going, what are you talking about? Yeah. Well, you have to check out our live stream. Live streaming every day uh, or every week on on Wednesday mornings. We are glad to have you with us. And if you have questions for the Get Ready for the Future show, as always, we want you to get them to us. And here's how you do it. You can call or text to this number, 501-381-5228. I'll say it again, 501-381-5228. You can also send us an email, send it to show at getreadyforthefuture.com. And we've got four good ones today that we're going to dive into. We'll start with Robert from Alexander. Robert writes, we're a double income family and have a three-month emergency fund should we try to get it to six months or max out our 2024 ira contributions robert thanks for the question great question uh at a little bit of a pivotal point in deciding where to send the cash flow let's start john i guess talking about the emergency fund there there are some kind of rules of thumb that we work through and we're big proponents of saying rules of thumb can be rules of dumb i don't think that's the case here Because if you're having trouble figuring out how much you should have in your emergency fund, this is a great guide, a great concept.
2: Yeah, I think that it's important, first of all, that most people think about three months income. But in reality, it needs to be three months expenses as opposed to three months income as far as a minimum is concerned. So uh, Robert is not specific. He just said we have a three month emergency fund. Is that income or is that expenses? If it's income, Then you probably have more than three months expenses in that in that particular pool and i don't know that there's any magic to three versus six or anything of that nature i think that unless you and your spouse are working at the same company it's fairly unlikely that you would both lose your jobs at the same time Mm -hmm. so you have to think about this about uh, having an adequate cushion to give you that kind of 90-day runway to cover expenses while you are looking for a job. Now, in most cases today, in today's job market, it doesn't take 90 days to find a job. Uh, jobs are, are pretty plentiful, and you can actually you know, go out and, and find another job fairly quickly. So I think that that's, number one, the thing that you have to think about in this is, is this a cushion against a potential job loss or uh, against a potential long-term illness that you might have that would, you know, run you out of sick leave at at work or whatever the case may be. So, I think that's the first place that you want to start in wondering about what you should do.
0: Yeah,
1: I think the double income part of his question is big there because, as you mentioned, the likelihood of both of you losing your job in a three- or six-month window is pretty low, right? Right. I mean, I, I don't want to make assumptions there because you may have some really volatile employment situations, but in most cases, you're not going to have a job security issue that doubles like that. So I think in that sense, I would lean towards, it's not vitally important to get from three to six months at the expense of retirement savings, if that's the case. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. But ultimately, when you, you know, we work with our clients all the time, John, and talk about these numbers, and we talk about three to six months of expenses. And, you know, the emergency fund should be separate. You know, I think some people confuse emergency fund, or not confused, but overlap, we'll say, emergency fund with
2: savings account, right? It, yeah.
1: And and it can be in the same account if you've got it in your mind, the separation of it, but an emergency fund is not a savings account.
2: Yeah, if you have it in the same account, you probably also ought to have a spreadsheet that basically says, okay, this amount is for my savings. This amount is for my emergencies and and keep up with it that way but i think our point here is that your uh it truly needs to be an emergency fund or emergency section of that of that account mm-hmm. and a vacation and a new car are not emergencies right. those are things that can be planned for and that's what the savings is for the emergencies are for true emergencies when something blows up when you lose a job when you get sick those are emergencies that puts a a uh, a almost a uh, uh, sustaining uh, you know pressure on your your household income and mm-hmm. so that's what the emergency fund is for the savings part of that account, really should be for things like vacations things that you can foresee coming down the pike that you want to spend money on but you're not sacrificing your financial security in order to have fun or get you know a luxury or something yeah. like that
1: so when you get to this emergency fund number in your head that's the baseline it has to stay there and if there is a an emergency that depletes it then your efforts should be to get it back to where it was and it should go without saying as many times as we have said it on this show but your emergency fund should be in cash we still occasionally have clients john come in and say well my emergency funds in that brokerage account over there well it
2: could lose 20 percent in a few few weeks yeah you have to think about it this way the emergency part of your savings is really insurance Mm -hmm. it's not investment money you don't want to put that money at risk and you know we had a lot of people coming in back when interest rates were almost nothing saying my money's not making anything over here And we were like, it's okay. You don't need to be making anything necessarily on that money. But now that rates are higher, Mm -hmm. you can actually earn a little bit of interest on that. But the key here is that you want to protect the financial security of that money because who knows when you might need it you know, you know how Murphy's Law is. You might be in a situation where the market is down and you need that emergency money. And now you have less of it because of the market downturn. Those are all things that you have to think about in structuring the proper emergency fund for yourself.
1: Yeah. And I would say one more word on that before we get to the retirement side of this. Ultimately, it's got to be a number that you're comfortable with. You know, it can be three months, it can be six months. But that number, at least for me personally, there's a number in my head that I like it right there. Right. And, and you know, and, you know, the flip side of that is some clients will say, Well, I like it at 100000 Well, that's a different story. Yeah. That's too much in cash. And we've got to talk about that unless there's a reason uh, that you have a, an expenditure coming up really soon, a large purchase. But I, I think it is a number that you're ultimately comfortable with. I think about it in my personal life, John, a lot about if everything that could, you talked about Murphy's Law, if everything that could go wrong went wrong in a 12 month period in terms of health, how much is it going to take for me to meet my health insurance deductible? roof caves in? How much is it going to take for me to meet the deductible? How much is it going to take me to get to the insurance company's
2: pockets? Yes, yeah. yes, that's so exactly that's, right. Now, let's talk about the the question about funding his 2024 IRA contribution. Now, we're going to infer from that question that the IRA is a viable IRA. And what I mean by that is that you can deduct it, you can contribute to it, and it could be your only retirement account. And if it is your only retirement savings vehicle, then we would say absolutely. You want to keep your emergency fund at three months and be sure that you're taking advantage of that uh, retirement vehicle in the form of an IRA. Now, the question is, does uh, Robert have a 401k plan? Uh, If that is the case, then is the IRA contribution needed to hit his retirement goal? And if it is, then we would say, yes, go ahead and make that contribution. IRA contributions may not benefit as much as different types of accounts could. So Mm -hmm. you could go to the 401k and max out your 401k, get the pre-tax on that, as opposed to going to the IRA. So there's a lot of questions around Robert's particular situation that we would need to know more about. You could also contribute to a roth ira a roth ira is something that we really do like it is uh been called in different locales a swiss army knife of mm-hmm. the financial products because you literally can take out the principal from a roth ira at any time and think about you know i have a major emergency i can go in and get my principal out of the roth ira no tax no penalty so you could augment that three-month emergency fund by contributing to a roth ira with the peace of mind of knowing that if things got really bad and I drained down that three month emergency fund, I still had the go to money in the Roth IRA that I could tap into in the event of a dire emergency. Let me kind
1: of expand a little bit on something you referenced there. Is the IRA contribution really the thing that's going to benefit you the most? You know, if it is your only retirement vehicle, yes, as you pointed out, that's the way to go. If you have the 401k and you have a chance to lower your taxable income now, by making pre-tax contributions to that, you may actually not even really benefit from contributing to a traditional IRA from the taxation standpoint because there are income limits. And Robert mentions he's a double income family. So if he's filing jointly his tax return, that limit is actually $123,000 in household income. So if you're over that, it begins to phase out the deductibility of your traditional IRA contribution you get a partial deduction. But if your family income is over $143,000, then you get no deduction at all. So the point being, you'd still get the tax deferred status by putting into a traditional IRA, but you wouldn't be able to deduct it on your current or year uh, that you make the contribution. Those would be uh, not tax deductible. So again, pointing back towards the Roth, because you do have more wiggle room to get money into the Roth IRA. Now, we're not talking about deductions here, because there there is no tax deduction for making a Roth IRA contribution because it's after-tax money going in but they still the IRS still limits who is eligible to contribute to a Roth IRA. You can contribute up to the annual contribution limit if you make less than $230,000 married filing jointly. If it's over 240, you cannot contribute Front end directly to a Roth IRA. So, those are some things for maybe Robert and anybody else listening to try to determine well, which should I go with, the traditional or the Roth?
2: Let me uh, do a quick commercial for a Roth IRA. If you make, you and your wife make less than $230,000 a year, and I'm talking to everybody here, not just Robert. You need to be running to set up and, and contribute to a Roth IRA because a Roth IRA has great benefits in retirement. It's tax free income, it doesn't count against uh, your Social Security as far as taxation is concerned. There's a lot of reasons why you need to be doing a Roth IRA. And if you don't have the option of doing a Roth IRA because between you and your wife, you make over $230,000 a year, then you probably ought to be pushing on your employer to amend the retirement plan that you have at work and offer a Roth 401k option. That is becoming more and more popular. Tax-free income in retirement, a tax diversification in retirement is very important. And so for you to have a successful retirement and to be financially independent in retirement, one of the things that is really important for you to do is to limit the government's hands into your retirement account and under the current rules. And I understand that, that Congress made the rules of the Roth IRA and they can take away the rules of the Roth IRA. I get that, but we got to play with what we've got right now. And what we have is an opportunity to grow tax-free income and have tax, uh, grow uh, an account tax-free, I should say, and then have tax-free income coming from that account at retirement.
1: Let me say this, John, before we move on to the next question. I, I, we sat with a uh, prospective client last week in the meeting room here in West Little Rock, and one of the things he said, he said, I listen to your show all the time. I don't always know what you're talking about, but I always <laughs> listen to your show. It, I get that, you know, if you're on the receiving end of everything that we just threw up on the microphone, right. it can be very complicated, uh, complex to try to retain. So let me offer this to you. If you have a question about anything we just talked about or anything we're going to talk about in the Get Ready for the Future show, give us a call or send us an email. You can always send an email to show at GetReadyForTheFuture.com and ask a question. Say, I heard you guys guys talking about the Roth IRA. What were you saying about XYZ? we would be glad to get back in touch with you that way. Or you can call toll-free 866-653-PLAN. That's 866-653-7526. Ask a question, set an appointment, whatever you'd like to do to get some things going in your financial future. All right, next up on the program, it is... Amber from Benton. I am 34 and married with two kids. I have $40,000 in a pension from a previous job getting a 5.68% return. Should I look at moving that to my 401k for better returns? All right, Amber, thanks very much. We're gonna to have to clarify some things in Amber's question there pension, when she says $40,000 in a pension and it's getting a return, we're going to assume that means the pension lump sum value, right? not likely a benefit. But in many cases, when you look at a pension, when you leave an employer, and my, and my wife actually just went through this at her employer, she hasn't left her employer, but they have decided to end the pension, to eliminate the pension and offer buyout. So that happens quite frequently. It doesn't happen really in the public sector. But in the private sector, it happens a lot. Uh, Pensions are going away. We've talked about that on the program many times that the stats are now less than 20% of people who will have a pension in retirement. And it's because of the pressure on that pension to be sustainable that many corporations, many employers are offering buyouts so that they don't, in lieu of giving you a monthly benefit in retirement, they are going to offer you the chance to get the lump sum and that is a qualified plan. So in many times there many times there's an opportunity to roll that out to an IRA. Haven't seen really too many opportunities where they can roll it into the four oh one K, but that's what Amber's asking here.
2: Yeah, so you, you have to think about a pension and what it is. It is an obligation on the part of the company to pay you a certain calculated lifetime income. Now I want you to think about that. That usually starts at sixty-five, and if you live to ninety-five years old, that is a thirty-year commitment from the company that you used to work for. So those things are very expensive. And when companies realize, oh my gosh, that is busting up my budget, then they begin to say, all right, we're gonna transfer that responsibility. We're gonna transfer that risk and that responsibility over to the employee. And so they have the opportunity for a cash out pension plan. Now, uh, Amber says that her pension plan is earning a 5.68% return. Uh, that doesn't really equate to how much lifetime income that she would be getting in retirement. So that is a question. Uh, And and obviously, what you want to know is what is that projected monthly benefit going to be? Because you have to kind of do some backwards math, Scott, to figure out, well, if that is going to equate to, let's say, $400 a month lifetime income, how much is that likely to be? And can that present value of those dollars grow enough in a 401k or IRA or wherever you roll it to, can they earn enough to be able to outstretch that pension payment? The other thing is that pension payment is guaranteed. As long as you live, it's going to pay out to you. If you take the money and invest it, understand that the risk is now on you you've got to figure out the investments you've got to figure out what lifetime income that that can create mm-hmm. so there's a lot there scott that i think is is got you've got to be worked through when trying to decide what to do with a lump sum pension well, let's put some numbers on it then so if if amber is 34 Uh, she's going to be
1: probably several decades before she's going to be eligible to take that pension as a monthly benefit. We don't know, she doesn't say here, but let's say it's 65, right, that she's going to be looking at being eligible to take it as a benefit. So if she takes the $40,000 and invests it until retirement, that would be 31 years uh, at her age. If we applied an 8% annual rate of return, so we're going to assume the average long-term return of the stock market, over those 31 years, she would wind up with $475,000. That 40000 would potentially grow, not a guarantee, but potentially grow to $475,000. If you assume a 5% withdrawal off of that $475,000, Amber, you'd be looking at $1,979 per month. Why do we use 5%? That's a standard um, annuity withdrawal. So if if you use that $475,000 at retirement and annuities were like they were today, you could potentially get a lifetime income uh, off of that with around 5% withdrawal. So again, these are, these are hypotheticals, no, no guarantees here. But if she did look at that and say, hey, if I took the money, I could potentially still have a guaranteed income of almost $2,000 a month at retirement
2: and then compare that to what her monthly benefit is projected to be in the pension. Yeah, and the pension program should be projecting a monthly benefit yep. regardless of what the situation is, so you should be able to compare that and then it's let's make a deal. Do you take the certain thing from the pension uh you know behind door number 1 or do you take a risk and invest that money and try to get to where Scott was kind of going with that with some conservative numbers uh and it is there is no certainty to it but what you can do is sit down with an advisor work through the details of that, they can help you to make that decision in your current situation. Yeah. And and generally
1: speaking, you know, I think the the big takeaway for Amber and for everyone listening when it comes to this is the question came in with dollars, right? 40,000 in the pension and return information, 5.68% return. And that's where people's heads are at. Mentally, though, when you talk about retirement, when you talk about true Financial independence. Your mindset has to get off of rate of return and account value, and it's got to get onto income.
2: Yes, retirement is an income problem. It is not an asset problem. You've got to be able to have sources of income to be able to sustain you in retirement, and you want to cover your necessary required expenses in retirement with guaranteed income sources like pension, social security, annuity income, all of those things kind of take care of your basic need. If you kind of think about that Maslow's hierarchy of need that that we all learned about in high school or college, as far as what a person needs in their life, they have their their needs, their wants, and then their, their dreams or their wishes. We're talking about the bottom of the pyramid here. We're talking about taking care of your basic needs. Once you've taken care of your basic needs, then you can invest how you want to and you can meet those wishes and desires and wants and things of that nature. But your needs need to be met with guaranteed current income. And you just got to figure out in this particular case from Amber's uh, viewpoint, what is the best path? Is it down the annuity road or is it down the pension road? Each week we name a
1: question that we use on the show as the question of the week. And I say we, John and I don't, so don't blame us. <laughs> Somebody puts it here and tells us this is the question of the week. So we want to say congratulations, Amber. You are the question of the week. And for sending it in, we'd love to send you a Get Ready for the Future show Tumblr. All you have to do is email us to claim it, send it to show at getreadyforthefuture.com. Melvin's up next on the program via email. We bought a house at the height of the market, but we were able to snag a sub 5% mortgage rate. It doesn't feel like our forever home, though we're happy here for the next few years. What should our next step be toward our forever home? Melvin, thanks for the question. And I think, John, we have to define what forever home actually means to Melvin because it's going to mean something different to me. You're, you're already in your forever home. You yep. love it. You know what forever home means to you. But what does it mean to Melvin? And and what and more specifically, let's put some numbers together i mean again it all comes back to dollars and cents here in math but we we need melvin needs to really spend some time thinking about the size of that forever home could be smaller right i mean as you get close to retirement some people downsize it forever yeah. home doesn't necessarily mean dream home uh, but cost are you going to buy an existing property or are you going to build you have to
2: set some goals in place before we can really get to the next step yeah and let me tell you that that when you become empty nesters then all of a sudden the situation changes. You think, oh, well, I want this because I got kids coming in and all, all this type of thing. And then the kids all get their own life. You mm-hmm. know, you just went through a, a marriage of one of your daughters and, yep. you know, that's a whole new world that you're about to step into, Scott. Mm-hmm. And so it, it really is a a, a tough question to, to answer. Uh, one of the questions that I would have is, did you roll money into this new home From an old home do you have a lot of equity in this new home because having equity in a house changes the gambit on that it changes all the math and the numbers uh what's what's the mortgage situation look like how much do you owe on that mortgage uh, you can save a carload of money uh, on on really taking a look at, at this type of thing and and the other question that I would have is do you still have margin in your budget as you think about that forever home yeah uh, you don't want to be house rich and income poor yeah uh, that's uh, that's a key thing I think that you want to do and i think ultimately scott the big question is can you be debt free on your mortgage by the time you retire you don't want to carry a mortgage into retirement if you if at all possible you don't want to carry that into retirement because it just drains more money out of your retirement account, redirects it from things that you really want to do into things that you have to do, which is to pay that mortgage payment.
1: Yeah. And we don't know how old Melvin is, but you know, back to our previous discussion on the on the question before this one about retirement income. Retirement is an income problem. So to find solutions to that, it certainly is a huge help to get what is your biggest monthly expense out of the way, and that's your mortgage in most cases, Pay off that mortgage prior to retirement. So, Melvin, if you're very close to retirement, we've we've got a, con- a certain conversation that looks different than if you're 30 years away from retirement. So, I think that's the end goal for us as financial planners to look at making sure we're we're mortgage-free and really completely debt-free by the time we reach. Uh, retirement which is a real big indicator of true financial independence if you don't owe anybody anything but when it comes to the margin in your budget I'm going to back up real quick before we get off of this question on that hopefully you've got it hopefully before you got into this sub 5% mortgage uh, that you didn't stretch yourself too thin you know I had a real real estate agent tell me one time that you'll grow into the house. Buy more house. Obviously, he wanted me to buy more house. Uh, yeah. Because you're going to grow into it. And that may or may not be true. If your income continues to increase and your mortgage stays level, that would be true. But you don't know that. So I would never sacrifice margin in your cash flow situation just to get a bigger house. So currently, as you hopefully have that margin, what are you doing with it? And the decision point really there is to do you accelerate mortgage payments on your current home Or do you put that extra margin toward investments or towards cash to pile up for the next down payment? And I think really the only way we're going to be able to answer that is to know the specific numbers and work with Melvin in that.
2: Yeah, I think that's very true. And one other thing I'll I'll throw in here, Scott, you know, uh, there are instruments out there and we don't deal with these, but uh, there are instruments out there called reverse mortgages. And basically what you're doing is you're consuming the equity in your house to uh, sustain income. Uh, I don't know that you just want to build it up in a house to just uh, begin to eat away at it. I think there's a lot better way to do that. Uh, you're not uh, really wrapping up the the uh, equity and the the actual home itself into a mortgage situation that is going to be left for somebody else to deal with. I think that that you know oftentimes you got to think about all right I've had this level of house maybe I paid it off could I sell that house? take the profit out of that, capture some tax-free uh, you know, money coming out of that from a profitability standpoint, and then uh, buy something smaller or even rent uh, because you may be in a situation when you are older that you don't really want to have the upkeep uh, uh, of a house that's expensive. Uh, you know, just having my yard taken care of breaks my budget. It's yeah. it's expensive to do that. And so it is really one of those things that you've got to take a look at the entire circumstance, not just get locked in on the subject of the house. Yeah. And we didn't even address the sub 5% mortgage. I doubt he's moving anytime soon with where rates are right now. That's right. Too. Yes.
1: <laughs> Which is the way most people are looking at the situation. Yes. Hey, thanks for your question, Melvin. If you have questions for the Get Ready for the Future show, we are here to answer them all you have to do is call or text them to us at 501-381-5228 to hear your questions on the air or send us an email just send it to show at get the we've got about six minutes left on the show and we are ready for our final question will from Mel writes do millionaires and multi-millionaires really only have three to six months of expenses in cash is there a difference in how much cash you should have based on net worth? Hmm. Well, the question is simply based on net worth? No, because the expenses really, it doesn't matter what your net worth is. Your expenses are your expenses. Now, That's they, right. they could tend to be higher if you have more income. I don't know that they're necessarily higher. If you have more net worth, in fact, I'd argue they might be lower. And that's how you raised your net worth.
2: Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, when you talk about millionaires and multimillionaires, their situation may be a little bit different than yours. Uh, If they're millionaires and multimillionaires, they likely are not dependent upon a job. Maybe they own a company or whatever the case may be. Their access to cash is a lot uh, freer than most people who are in an employment situation. So uh, this is why rules of thumb don't work. Uh, it's very situational, and you know, if you take someone who is a multimillionaire, you know, their business might have, uh, you know, several million dollars of cash sitting on the books, and they could go access that cash if they had a personal need because they own the business. So I think it's all relative. Net worth, as you said, Scott, is not a factor. Yeah. Uh, net worth is one of those things that is all of your worth, everything that you own, includes your home and all this type of thing your liquid net worth is, is a completely different uh, deal. And so I think that to, that to have three to six months expenses in an emergency fund is a pretty universal truth for almost everybody. Uh just the fact that you are a, a high net worth individual means that you could be asset rich and cash poor. Mm-hmm. So, and having that three to six months money setting aside is really vital for them because they have emergencies just like everybody else. People think that, you know, millionaires and multimillionaires, they just have to wave their hand and all their problems are solved. That's not true. Yeah. I've known many, many uh, millionaires and multimillionaires that we've actually worked with here at Gen Wealth. And their situation is real, just like yours is. They're just dealing with bigger, uh, bigger dollar amounts. Uh, but as I've said very often, Scott, around here, that old rap song, Mo Money, Mo Problems, <laughs> yeah. that is absolutely
1: true. Can for sure be. You know, and he mentions three to six months of expenses in cash. I think that that's probably still a good rule of thumb for anyone. But when he says in cash, I'm sure millionaires and multimillionaires have a lot more than that sitting in cash. To John's point, there's a cash flow. With someone who might be a business owner, that that needs to be higher than someone who is just working through a W-2 employment situation and, and doesn't have a lot of, let's say, irons in the fire.
2: Yeah. Let me also kind of just rant for just a second here, because implied in Will's question is, well, what are they doing? Why, why are they, they, and I think we've got to somehow get out of this mode of comparing ourselves to everybody else. Here's what matters, Will. What are you doing? What is building your net worth? What is your financial security look like? What does your financial independence look like? It doesn't matter if that millionaire or multimillionaire lives next door to you or works down the hall from you. His situation is totally irrelevant to your situation. Pay attention to your situation, build your financial security, build your financial independence on your circumstances. I think that oftentimes, Scott, this is why we have such a a debt-laden, consumeristic society is everybody's worried about what somebody else is doing. Have they got a better house? Have they got a better car? Have they got a better lifestyle? Whatever the case may be, tend to your knitting and take care of you. And don't worry about anybody else. And you will become financially independent and be satisfied in your own mind. You will never be satisfied if you're always comparing because... Somebody is always better off than you are.
1: I see that every time I open my Facebook page. Yes, absolutely. Somebody has always gone on vacation. Somebody always just bought a car. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. You, but you're seeing the life they want you to see on Facebook. So it you is, have to it keep is in a mind. very well
2: crafted right. uh, image of whatever that person wants you to see about yeah. their life. Uh nobody wants to throw up on Facebook and tell all their their warts on Facebook. Yeah, some of my friends do that. Well, yeah, that's a whole different story that we'll have to talk about later. We're getting a little off
1: topic, I think. We've got about 90 seconds left. I want to address the cash position part of this question though. When he, when he, cuz I feel like there's something implied here too that do they really only keep that much in cash cuz I would think they'd want more in cash. Cash is also I think Perceived to be dead money, right? Like it's, Mm -hmm. we talked about that earlier in the earlier question about emergency fund. You want it in cash because you want it liquid and you want no risk on it. Certainly for short term money, and this kind of ebbs into the retirement income conversation here. If there is money, we're not talking about emergency fund that you need to keep uh, available but not used unless it's an emergency. If you're using money in the near term, it doesn't have to be in cash. Right now, it needs to be in cash-like instruments, but when you look at CDs and money market accounts, money market mutual funds, the interest rates right now are at a place where we're utilizing those, unlike I've done in my eight years here as a financial advisor, uh, simply for the short-term buckets, if you will, for near-term spending for our retirees.
2: Yeah, and and the the rates are, are better. Uh, you're getting a little bit more return. It, It really doesn't move the needle as far as your overall financial independence is concerned. I think it's more of a feel good thing than anything else. But those rates are higher. And you don't need to look at it again as investment money. You need to look at it as insurance that's gaining a little bit of interest.
1: Well, thanks, everyone, for your questions for Will, Melvin, Amber and Robert. If you've got one, we'll tell you how to get one to us before we end the show. But you heard the bell in the background. That means it's
2: time for our final thoughts. And John, we'll start with you. Scott, I'm going to steal a little bit from what you said earlier. You know, you were talking about uh, one of the questions and uh, you said, if you're confused by what we're saying, just reach out and call us. Here is the, the very uh, freeing, relieving thought I want to leave you with. You don't have to be the expert at all this stuff. You don't have to know what we're talking about per se. You just have to know that what we're talking about, we know what we're talking about. And and, and that is the, the real key. I think when you uh, understand the dynamic of what uh, a relationship with a financial advisor does, it really does allow you to tap into expertise and bring someone alongside you who has been there and done that, And walk through all of these issues with uh, with other clients that you can pull from that experience and that knowledge base. You don't have to be an expert at everything. I can tell you when I take my car to the shop, I drive in and I hand the keys to the guy and I tell him what's going on with it, and I don't try to fix it. And I think that ought to be the approach that everybody has and working with a financial advisor. Our goal, my final thought is our
1: goal on the show here, the get ready for the future show, and really for becoming financial advisors and working with clients is to help people achieve true financial independence. And we want to give you an opportunity to get a free offering from us called Securing Financial Independence, Seven Steps to Building a Sustainable Life After Work. You can get that for free by texting the word STEPS to 501-381-5228, or you can visit GetReadyForTheFuture.com forward slash steps or just email us and ask for it that is all the time we have for this week's get ready for the future show we thank you for being with us and as always we'll be right back here next week answering your questions call or text them to us at 501-381-5228 or send an email to show at get ready for
0: Thank you for listening to the Get Ready for the Future show. If you enjoy hearing from the Gen Wealth team every week, make sure and subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help us get the word out on building towards financial independence, leave us a rating and review. The Gen Wealth Financial Team is available to you 24 7 at info at getreadyforthefuture.com or call our offices at 866 653 PLAN. That's 866 653 7526. You should personally consult a financial advisor before making any investment, and no strategy can assure success. Securities offered through LPL Financial. Member FINRA. Investment advice offered through Independent Advisor Alliance. Independent Advisor Alliance and GenWealth Financial Advisors are separate entities from LPL Financial.